Good evening. Hey, Mark White from the Spin Doctors, the bass player. What's going on? Well, hey, man. Uh, thanks for being with me today. Welcome to another edition, everybody, of Thinking Out Loud. And today we are really blessed to have with us uh, one of the funkiest bass players alive, Mark White from the Spin Doctors. I've been a huge Spin Doctors fan since the very beginning. And I've seen that. you guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm from New Jersey and sometimes when I'm down here in Florida now for the last six years. And whenever people say, where are you from? And I say Jersey, they say, uh, well, at least you have your health. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. what. I'm in Florida as well. I'm in uh, Orange Park. Okay. So you're a couple of hours away from me. That's great. I didn't know that. I thought you were in Texas. No, I live in Texas, but I'm I'm record I'm doing a uh, I'm doing a project with this uh, friend of mine, Amy. Her last name is Hershey. That's the name of our band. We named the band after her last name, Hershey. Oh, okay. And it's like electronic dance music. So I've been working with her for like three years. I've been coming in and out of Florida, and we finally put our stuff out just this week, actually. Oh, really? So you got some new stuff? Is it available on all the platforms, Spotify? On all the platforms. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the name of the project again? It's called Hersey. It's says H-E-R-S-E-Y. Like is her last name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wrote I wrote the music and she wrote the music. She does all the lyrics and the singing and we collaborate on the on the music. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done here. So tell me a little bit about how you got into music. You know, when did it start? And, you know, what turned you on to that? And then take us all the way through into uh, how the Spin Doctors started. Yeah, well, first I was an artist. I mean, what a, a, a terrible one at that. I was I was a horrible artist when I was a kid. And I remember my brother, there was a Native American that lived down the hall from us. This is back in the 60s, right? And mm -hmm. uh, he played guitar. So he was giving my brother guitar lessons. And he asked me, I don't know if he, I can't remember. I can't believe I actually remember this. He said to he said to me, Mark, you want to you want to you know take guitar lessons, and I was like, nah. He's like, oh, why not? Musicians are sissies. <laughs> <laughs> and I I can't believe I remember that. Wow. So, so that, I think I I had to have been about 10, 10 or nine when that happened, and my. Uh, my family split up. My mother and father divorced, and I went with my father. And I stayed with him for a while. And when I turned 15, I moved to Queens. And that's when I met my friend Reggie, who lived next door to me. He played drums. And I went over to his house one day, and all, and all these girls were going crazy because he was playing all the beats of the day. And I just had it in my brain. Oh, my, that's how you pick up girls. And that was it. <laughs> that's, the reason I, that's the reason why I played music. Yeah, that's that sounds right. That sounds typical. But I, I got so obsessed with it that I was in the house practicing like the minute I woke up, like I had no I, my social life just died. Like I everything was I was a total musician and that was it. So you started on drums or you went right to bass or were you on guitar? Well, I played I played guitar, mm -hmm. but I didn't know there was a difference between the guitar and the bass. Right. So my, we had this, you know, you, you I don't know how old you are, but. I'm 53. All right, so you remember the Sears catalog. Oh, absolutely. Right, so that's where I got my first guitar. And I remember looking at the guitar and the bass, and I said, well, this one's got more strings on it. It probably does more. I had no <laughs> idea there was a difference. <laughs> I didn't know anything about music, man. I mean, for me to be able to play bass the way I do today is a miracle. Because wow. like, I had no idea. I didn't even know, like my friend Tassis, I had this Greek friend. And that I grew up in the Bronx. And strangely enough, when I moved to Queens, they were learning music, how to play and everything. And we didn't even know it. And then I just happened to call him up. And he, I said, yeah, I'm playing music now. He said, oh, my God, I'm playing music, too. I'm, you know, I'm a musician. I play guitar. And, and then I told him I wanted to buy a bass. So he took me down to the store, and we bought this bass. And uh, he switched the strings around for me because he realized I was left-handed. I was already playing left-handed, unfortunately. Right. So were you in a band playing guitar at all? Or did you... you know, I'm playing the bass. And a couple of weeks later, I, he calls me up and I, I said, hey, man, check this out. And he goes, he's listening. He says, is that thing in tune? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Doing it? And I said, he says, it's got to be in tune. 
I said he two ways what? <laughs> the universe. Right, so he said you have to tune the strings have to be tuned in relation to the other strings. And I'm like, well, how do you do that? Like I had, I thought the tuning page was just to keep the strings on. Wow. I mean that's how freaking crazy I was. Yeah, so you really didn't know anything I didn't about know it. Anything, man. Nothing. I was playing that bass for two weeks and it wasn't even in tune. Oh my making gosh. Up, and making man. up stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, there are a lot of people doing right. that. <laughs> and, and, all right. so, and so he he explained it to me. And I tell you, I got so discouraged that I almost gave up. Wow. I almost gave up. I was like, man. So did you go out and get yourself a tuner or did you learn how to self-tune? No, I had to call him up every day and ask him to tune it for me over the phone. Which was wow. Hard... We used to tune to the dial tone on the telephone. See, I didn't even think of that. You pick it up. Yeah, find out what note that was and then figure it out from there until we got the electric tuners. So then you're playing bass and you get into a band? No, no, no. It was, it, it was a lot. I mean, I went through a lot of hell, but, you know, I'll condense it. But he, uh, I got a tuning fork, so that was a good thing. And, and then I started, I just <laughs> right. started, I was practicing for a long time. And then I met this guy who was left-handed too in my neighborhood. And then he started showing me stuff. He showed me the major scale. And the other thing he said, he noticed I wasn't alternating my fingers when I was picking. And he was a stickler for that. And then I almost gave up again because I couldn't do it. I mean, I struggle with that more than anything else. So now I'm a stickler. He turned me into a, you know, alternating finger Nazi. So if I see people not doing it, I get upset. But I have to, I try to calm myself down. But Right. So you're talking about, well, for you, it would be your left hand fingers, right? right? And so... Yeah, so you know there are people that play with their thumb or with a pick or with two fingers or three fingers or like Billy Sheehan who plays with like four fingers. So you're talking about alternating, you know, your uh, pointer finger and your uh, middle finger. Right. That was a, I'm a, but now I play with all four because I saw Billy who I'm in love with and uh, I just started I started working on it like a year and a half ago. And let me tell you, that is one difficult thing. Oh man, you know, for a year, for a few years back, I switched to kind of putting my palm flat instead of arching your right. wrist, you know, like, like Jocko would have, or, or m most people do. And then I started using my thumb and my three fingers right. and kind of doing it almost like a classical guitarist would do, but instead laying it flat. And I was able to do stuff I never thought possible before. So yeah, there's a lot of ways to experiment. Did you used to go see Billy with Talis back in the day? No, I never, you know, the funny thing about Billy was that uh, when I was 15, there was a Spanish guy, this Puerto Rican downstairs for me. And he used to hear me practicing on my terrace. So one day he was like, hey, Slick, he used to call me Slick. Hey, Slick, come down here. I'm in apartment 2A, I think it was, something like that. So I go down there and he's like this, like this super advanced guitar player. Like I never, to this day, I don't even know anybody who plays like this guy. I mean, he was just, he knew everything. Chord, these chords, what did he used to call them? Chord conversions and all this. He played bossa nova. Mm -hmm. you know, and he would just make up these bossa nova tunes on the spot. And so he would make wow. up these bossa nova bass lines and I could never, like to, I never successfully played any of them all the way through. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, these things... So then I'm guessing you sat in your room or on the terrace there and you advanced to the point where you finally got into a band. No. What happened was this, this guy, <laughs> this guy gave me, he had a whole footlocker full of guitar player magazines. Magazines about guitars. So imagine, mm -hmm. imagine my mind, right? I'm, I'm freaking out. So he said, yo, you can take those. You can have them, you know, just take them. So I took, carried the whole footlocker up and I went, I read every single guitar player magazine. So I knew wow. that's how I found out about Billy Sheehan because I didn't even, you know, I didn't, you know, how am I going to know about that guy? You know, I'm in the, I'm in the Queens. Right? Right. I don't know anything about that. And so, but he just seemed, you know, he had a, he had a whammy bar on his base. I think in one of the pictures I saw, and I, now I was obsessed with this whammy bar, having a whammy bar on my base. <laughs> I heard, I learned about, I think like, I think, I think Victor Wooten had one in the beginning right, right. too. He had one too. And uh, so, I wasn't really paying attention to Vic or 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 uh, Billy in the beginning. I was more into like funk, you know. I was just a total funk dude. I knew, right? I was, you know, in the same. And I had another friend named Tony. He told he told me about the. He went out one night. He said, "Dude, he calls me up. He says, man, I just saw this guy. 
using his uh, thumb like a guitar pick. And I was, I don't know if he saw Victor Wooten. I don't even know. He, he doesn't even remember. But he told me about it on the mm-hmm. phone. And then I went and got my bass and I just started working on it. And so that was my, because that's my main thing is using my, you know, double thumb thing, whatever. So I right. didn't even, I didn't even, you know, there was no Victor Wooten at the time. So I didn't even know what he was doing, but I tried doing it. It, that was like another horrible experience because like, I just couldn't get it to work right. And I couldn't, I couldn't play scales with it. And then I gave up. And then one day I was like, wait a minute, I'm never going to play scales on stage. Why am I even practicing? Why am I getting obsessed with trying to get these scales down with this thing? So I tried playing other things and that's when I got it down. And that's almost right before I got into spin doctors. So like when I got into spin doctors, I got to use it because I wasn't really doing anything. So the spin doctors was the first band for you. No, 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 dude. I've been in over 50 something bands. Are you kidding? I was, I was all over the place. Right. So were you into like Bootsy and those guys, like the whole par parliament funk thing? That's what I was saying. That was my main thing. I mean, that's all I ever, you know, listened to. And then, uh, so I was obsessed with, I was obsessed with perking, like a, the double thumb, but like keeping a lot of dead notes and, and just keep mm-hmm. percolate because that was my favorite bass player was Bernard Edwards from Chic and that's what he was doing and he, right. he had a double thumb technique but it wasn't he kind of hold his, his first finger and his thumb together as a pick and he would just use he would just fake pick it but without an actual pick and that's how he was getting that sound oh, wow. right so that's mm-hmm. so the double thumb is basically the same as that and then uh, right and I can't remember when it was but then I saw Billy Sheen doing a guitar, a bass solo somewhere, and it it just gave me like, it just raised it, my blood pressure went up. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> I was like, what the? <laughs> I know exactly what, what you mean. <laughs> and then that, and that's when I realized like, if you're gonna take a bass solo, you got to go all out. You right. Know, it's just got to be tons of notes, and the and the reason is because like, I mean I you know I like Jocko. You know they play over changes whatever like that, but. When you look at music, music is is got its categories, and the and the one like jazz and classical, like if you go to a music, you know, back in the day, if you went to a music store, the classical section was in a glass booth, and the jazz section was in, the jazz section was in the back. Mm-hmm. And the rock and roll and the, all the other stuff was like right in your face, and right, and that's what it is. I mean, and so when you see somebody like Billy taking a solo, he understand. I mean, I don't, you know, I could be wrong. I'm just guessing, but. It's like he understands, you know, it's all about the excitement. It's all about the notes. You know, these people aren't going to understand you playing over changes and all this other stuff that people do. That's a, that's a, for a small crowd, right? So, exactly. So it, and that, it's emotion. Right. It's a, exactly. It's emotion. So when you're playing on stage, in a, you know, where he was playing, you just want to go, blah, 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 blah. you just want to play as fast. I mean, dude, every time I listen to that thing, I'm just like, what the hell, right? <laughs> so... When I take my bass solos, I try to play as many notes as possible. Yeah, I love it, man. I love when you go off. I, I'm wait. I wait during the show for that uh, for that slot for your solo right. slot. And like, I was never, you know, I, I used to slap all the time, but I'm not like a big slapper anymore. But mm-hmm. you know, I met I met Victor, and you know, I sat in with Victor in, in Houston. He asked me to sit in with him, which was a huge honor. I couldn't believe that. Sure. And uh, and so I saw. Oh, here's a funny thing. I saw Vic. I saw Billy with his new band, Sons of Apollo. Have you Have you seen them yet? No, I haven't seen them, but I've listened to the music. So I wasn't. I'm not into that kind of music. I'm going to be honest with you, right? It's not. Right. I'm not into all that. I just really wanted to see a Billy Sheehan bass solo up front live. Right. And I get there, and I swear to God, it's almost like these guys are like the Navy SEALs or the special forces of music. I mean, I was so blown away by the other guys in the band that I almost forgot about Billy. Wow. So, so, so are you saying now you enjoy the music no, or guys, you were just, it was just, those guys nailed it. Like I can't listen to a lot of dream mm-hmm. theater, you know, I'm not into all that, but this stuff that these guys yeah, are doing, the stuff that these guys were doing, I don't know. I, I don't know how they were able to do it. I, I really don't. I, I swear. I mean, that music, that's one of my favorite albums right now. I mean, I listen to it all the time because I can't believe what I'm listening to. Because, you know, at first I listened to them live and I was blown away. And then when I bought the record and I'm listening to it, you know, I'm on a long drive. I bought the record. I'm listening to my car. I'm just like, are you freaking kidding me? 
that stuff is unbelievable. Oh, oh yeah, they're on a, another planet, another level. People like that, yeah. you know. I, I growing up for me, it was Rush and Yes. You know, those were the circles I grew up in, like progressive rock. Right. You know, so I always dug that with the odd time signatures and all kinds of weird changes and tempo changes. I like, you know, more, I guess what you call them, a symphonic rock. Right. You know, so I like it all, man. I can sit down and listen to Barbara Streisand. I can listen to Al Green. And then the next album, I'm listening to Ozzy. Yeah, that's, what, that's exactly you know, how I am. So. That's exactly how I am. I mean, I, I was listening to the Beatles on the way up to Connecticut. I had, I, I got all the Beatles. And I got all the uh, uh, Rolling Stones. And I got all of Elton John. And I just wanted to hear, you know, this, this pop stuff. But like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like you said before, it's melody, right? You know, people relate, the average person relates to melody. Exactly. They may not even know that's what they're relating to. But if they can sing it, if they can hum it, if they can makes them feel something, that's what music is. You go and see jazz. And I like a lot. There's a lot of jazz I do like. Right. But you go listen to a sax player for 15 minutes going, bah, 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 bah. people are like, what? I can't, I can't listen to this. Right. But what people really listen, what people really respond to is rhythm. That's what you have. Right. That's what it. That's what it goes. That's why, you know. I think the reason why his bass always worked the way they do because they, it just keeps it real simple, but it's really difficult at the same time. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. that can make sense. You know what I mean? It's just like, and and Victor does the same exact thing. I mean, when Victor takes these solos, I mean, it's so over the top that people don't even know what the hell they're listening to. But it doesn't. <laughs> but it doesn't go into these crazy changes and all this other weird stuff that people don't get. You know what I mean? It's like they they just they just realize that whatever he's doing doesn't isn't possible for the normal person. <laughs> you know what I mean? that's, <laughs> that's how you have to look at it. So right exactly. So so you're in all these bands like 50 bands right. and then how do you work your way into the spin doctors? How does that happen? Like if you could sum that up I, I'm in this band and that band and then all of a sudden this happened. Well, I was in a band called Spade which was uh, early 80s, late 80s and we wanted a new drummer. So those guys decided that we're going to put in ad in paper and, and get another black drummer. But I guess things are starting to change in the, in the world. So we said, you know, let's not do that. Let's just get, just put down for any drummer. So that's what we did. Right. So all these drummers showed up, mostly black drummers because it is a, you know, a funk band. And mm -hmm. everybody's showing, 50 people showed up. And then suddenly this freak walks in there. He's got this long hair and big nose, sits down. And we just go into the tune. Remember, nobody looked. I don't. I don't know if he Marcus gave people the tunes. I I don't remember that part. But it, I think people just played on the fly, and we just started playing the tune. And Aaron just jumped in, and he's looking me right in my eye, and I'm looking right at him, man. And we are totally locked, like it was sick. Mm -hmm. And then this white girl comes <laughs> in and does the exact same thing. So they had a, they had a right. call back for 17 people. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I am not about to sit through 17 people. I said, the only two people we need to see is that white dude and that white girl. And right. so we had another audition and we really wanted that white girl, man, because, you know, six black dudes with a white girl drummer, that would have been, a, you know, that would have been the bomb. Absolutely. But I said, no, this dude is, this dude is the bomb. He's special. That's all I can tell you. This guy is amazing. So we, we went with Aaron. And then we became friends. I got him in a couple other bands that I was in. And he really, you know, he's telling me the story. He really wanted me in the spin doctors, but he knew I was an asshole. So, <laughs> and trust me, I'm an asshole. And he, uh, he didn't, he didn't know how those guys would react to me or how I would react to them. All right, wait, I got to stop you there. In what way are you an well, asshole? He was, in, he was in another <laughs> band, right? That I was in called mm -hmm. Olive in the Branch. And no, he wasn't in the band. He came to see the band because he was. I tried. I was trying to get him in the band, right? So, he came to see the band, and we're in CBGBs. And he comes up to she. You know, I go up to her. But she comes up to me and she hands me my money, which was supposed to be forty bucks, but it's thirty dollars. It's thirty dollars. I said, Olive, where's my other ten dollars? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't have it right now, but you know, well, I'll get it to you. I said, No. I showed up with my fucking bass, and can I curse on here? Okay. Yeah. And uh, I showed up with my bass. And 
and uh, she's like, and I and I have all you know. I came in. Where's my money? She's like, well, I, I don't have it. I said, go out there and get my other ten dollars. I don't care if you have to beg for it. I don't care if you have to. I don't care where you. Do. I'm not leaving here until you give me my other ten. I want my forty bucks. So I was being a real. I was being mm-hmm. a real dick about it, right? And Aaron's just, you know, he's looking at me. He's with his girlfriend. He was like, what the hell? And, and when she left, I, I, you know, I went back into my regular mode. I said, dude, I'm sorry about that, man. But, like, this is a typical thing. If I let her get away with that, next week it'll be $20. Then it'll be $10. And now, then I'll be working for free again. So I had to, Absolutely. I had to put my foot down. And she, of course, she came back with my 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I used to tell people all the time, because, you know, I dealt with a lot of people in those days. Right, right. So, no, you know, so... Nobody could play, nobody would play on my level for free in those days. And I was just the anomaly, I suppose. So when I would get in these bands and they start giving me all this crap, I'm just, I, I would tell them, I said, listen, go find somebody else that plays like me and I'm going to go home. And nobody ever did. So because my friend Tony said to me, listen, you got to stop playing for free. You know, you got to start charging people. And so I did. And then I was, my phone stopped ringing for like six months. And then when I finally started to build it back up again, I started playing. I started playing on a different level. But before that, I was working for free. And these people, they, you know, they take advantage of you. Absolutely. And they don't, and they don't realize that, you know, they're not they're not based in reality because the, once I quit, they would try to find a bass player to replace me, and they could never do it. Right. And so after I got it, so after that, you know, after I quit, actually, Aaron quit Olive first. I stayed around for a little longer. I stayed in spade a little longer. And then I, when the spin doctors finally started taking off, you know, we were making all this, we were making money, which I was making $50 a night, which was unheard of mm. for me anyway. And, and a hundred dollars a night on the weekend. I wasn't making Right. So is this in the early nineties? Yeah. Late eighties, okay. late eighties, early nineties. I wasn't making money with any other band. Like I would be lucky if I made any money. With right. Guys. And so I just quit everything else I was doing because I didn't have to do anything else. And so I quit. And the spin doctors were literally playing every day. We were playing five nights a week sometimes. So where were you playing? Mostly in Manhattan? Yeah, mostly Manhattan. We had three clubs we played. The Nightingale, the uh, Mondo Perso, and the Mondo Connie. Those are our three main places. And then as we started to build up this following, which is another thing I never experienced before, we know we now we're playing the wetlands and the place is crowded. Like it was like a dream, man. All I can tell you, for me to go from what I went through to go to that was just like a dream. Because you know you show up and there's people there and they're and they're there to actually see you and they're flipping out, which is, you know, one time I came to the I came to Mondo no was it Nightingale, and I was walking down 14th Street and I turned a corner on the Second Avenue and it was like 300 people standing outside. Yeah, like, man. Now that, did, did that just did that just happen organically, or were you guys yeah. like really flyers everywhere, phone calls, management? Yeah, flyers, you know, we put we put flyers out, but it was mostly word of mouth. You know, so right. when I turned when I turned a corner and I saw three hundred people, I was like, why can't the people just go inside the club? Why are they outside? And I go inside the club, and there's three hundred people in there. <laughs> That's gotta feel great, man. Right. I mean, I never even crossed my mind that those people couldn't get in. I just thought they were all hanging outside the club. So if that blew your mind, I mean, how, how did you feel when all of a sudden, man, you're walking out on like the David Letterman show and stuff? <laughs> like, Dude. What the hell? How did we get here? Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. I mean, all that stuff is mind blowing. I mean, even today, I'm still blown away by, you know, we still we just did the whole summer. We played all summer. We had a nice tour and, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live was great. You guys are sounding as great as ever, man. I mean, you know, sometimes you go see somebody 20, 25 years later, and you're like, ah, eh, okay. It's like kind of a shadow of their former selves, but not you guys, man. I was blown away. Last time I saw you right uh, here in uh, where what? <coughs> Ocala. Right. Recently. Okay. Yeah, recently. yeah, we were there recently. And uh, so let me ask you this, because I never hear people ask people this question in the interview process. And I'm always like, why the hell aren't they asking them this? This is what musicians want to hear. Just give me a breakdown of like how you guys would write the tunes, like a Jimmy Olsen's blues or whatever it might be. How was that process? Did somebody come in with the song finished 
or did somebody just start, Hey man, you know, here's a lyric and here's the melody, the vocal line, you know, put something behind this. Or did you guys come with the music and then, you know, the, the, and just start playing the tunes and then he would put the vocal line over the top and just start messing around with it. How did it go? Well, every song is different. For instance, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, they wrote that song. Chris wrote it, and I think he showed it to Eric. And then Aaron Aaron and I played it for the first time on stage. Or they might okay. have already had it. So, for instance, because we used to hate to rehearse. Like, we never rehearsed. That's the one thing people don't realize, that we rarely rehearsed, which was the opposite of all the other bands I was in. So... Uh, what time is it? We wrote that on stage. That was a song. Wow. We, just, we wrote it on stage and then kind of every time we played it, it kind of morphed into what it is. And then we just remembered all our parts and that's what it is now. And then uh, we have a song called House. Until this day, uh-huh. every, every time we play it, the, the song is the same, but Chris makes up lyrics on the stage every, every time we play it. Is that makes- the tune, uh, you know, this is my house. Right. Yeah. Right. So every time we play oh. that song, he makes up the lyrics that night on the fly oh man i didn't realize that right and then uh what was the other one jimmy olsen blues that kind of was kind of chris was already playing it so we just kind of made it you know made up our own and uh two princes i wish i could remember how that went down i mean i know chris wrote it but i don't know how we worked it out like i don't know if so I literally it. on stage what would happen somebody would just start playing a riff and then it was just yep. like pick it you know figure it out like almost like a jam band right, and then exactly. he would just start making up lyrics and melodies right on the fly and then it eventually formed into a tune right like we have a song called your mama's a pajama and uh-huh. the first time we played it it didn't sound anything like it does now we just couldn't remember what we did the night before so we just played something else wow and then that's, that's so intimidating for me because I am on the other side of the spectrum. Like I'm the guy that's got to have everything worked out. You no, know, I, I always, I know. And I always envied people like you guys where it's like, these guys just get up and go for it, man. And then, and then what it is, what it is. And I was always like, nah, man, I, I'm not going on stage if I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, which is, you know, it has its, it has its good points because you, you know, all right, we got it. But it has its bad points in that there's no spontaneity. Right. I can't, I can't, I don't like to play like that. I like to play, I like to go on stage and not know what's going to happen. And so that's, yeah. the why, that's the reason why I got along with these guys because every other band I was in, we had to work everything out. Like I know I was in this one band and the drums, drummer got a drum solo. And so he's like one second into it and then he just falls apart. And, I'm, and I look at him like, what are you doing? Oh, I got to go home and work this out. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess, you know, there are different types of personalities. My brother-in-law is a bass player, and he's a bar bar band guy his whole life, but he can sit in with anybody and just go. Just start right. playing, man. I'll figure it out. That's yeah. probably how you are. Right. I'm not like that. I'm like, I got to know this tune. What keys it in? What happens next? Right. You know, I, I, like, to t- I like to take chances. I mean, like when I, when I sat in with Victor, we worked on a tune at Soundcheck. And then when we got on stage, we didn't even do it. We just made up something else. Oh man, that's great! <laughs> so that was nice, you know, because I don't, I don't even remember the tune anyway. I just, that's what, I don't even remember what the hell we were doing. And then, uh, yeah. So do you, do you today? Do you think? Do you still, or do you play by ear basically, or do you know? Okay, he just went to C minor seven. I know what I'll do here. He I went to know, G. I don't know. I don't know any of that crap. Right. So it's all ear. It's all ear, and I don't really worry about all the because you know what I did one day. I was listening to jazz and I'm listening to the guys going over the changes, right? You know, but it happened to right? All that, whatever. Yeah. And then I heard somebody scatting over it. There was a singer and then she scattered over the changes. And I was like, wait a second. There's no way that guy, all that girl, was a woman. I said, no way that woman knows that's an F minor flat with a raised Yeah, girl. right, right. How the hell is she doing that, right? So then I tried doing it. And then I realized your ear if you know if you've been playing music long enough your brain will make your face say the right notes right if you scat over it you don't even know what the hell you're singing over but you but your your brain does so then yeah. i started thinking i said you know in early so here's a problem in early jazz i don't think those guys really knew exactly what they were doing 100 percent. like they just were doing it for so long they just knew what to do i totally agree however i think 
and I can be wrong here, but I think that's a gift. That's like an innate gift. And then other people say, I'm going to try it, and they can't do it. But no, no, it's made... not, there's no gifts. If you work hard <laughs> enough, if you work hard enough, you will be able to do it. But let me. Well, let's say, for example, you have like a classically trained pianist, and they can look at a piece of music and play like Chopin to a T. But then you get them in an improv situation, and you go, "Go, man, you're on," and they can't do anything. If I have that person for one year, I guarantee you they will be able to do something. You just right. Keep- you know what it is? Just like just like you said, if you do it long enough in that type of setting, you'll figure it out. But if you never let yourself get in that setting, then you're screwed. Right. And so the problem, the problem with jazz today is that it's being taught because like, right. see, there's math behind music. So any, so if you got a guy who doesn't know what he's doing and he's playing over the changes, right? He doesn't, he doesn't even know what the changes are. He just, he can hear it. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody else can come along and transcribe that. And then, and they'll see that this dude is actually in, he's following the laws of music. You know, he's following the laws of nature. And then that person can analyze that and then turn that into a lesson. And then so you come along and you learn that lesson. And so what you're doing is you're getting a watered down version of what originally happened. So that's the reason why when you teach jazz, what you're doing is basically turning out robots. Mm -hmm. And the music reflects that. Right. So that's why. And and the other problem, too, is that most kids would see like, you know, jazz is the American. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. When you teach jazz to little kids, you're, you're ruining the music because you should only teach it to people who actually love the music, not because they have to learn it. Because mm. most kids want to learn rock and roll. What they should be teaching is general music. So this way you can go off and be a jazz musician if you want. You can go off and be a classical music if you want. You can play rock and roll. You can do this. But when you start teaching kids jazz, all you're doing is teaching a watered-down version of it because they're not even, first of all, they don't even appreciate it. Because like I, got, I got students and they, I want to learn how to play funk. I said, who are you listening to? What do you mean? Like, who are you <laughs> listening to? Who's your favorite funk? You know, they don't even, I said, there's no way you can play funk music if you're not listening to it. There's right. no way you can play jazz music if you're not listening to it. And I'll argue anybody in the ground over that one. So you like, you like the old school method. That's how I grew up too. You sit in your room and you put on your favorite players and you play along and you learn what they're doing and then you apply it to your style. Exactly. But you yep. know why people don't, you know why people don't do that? Why? It takes way longer. Yeah. You see, people take lessons for like I teach, but I'm an honest teacher. When mm-hmm. I get students, I get when I get my students and I go, all right, don't come back here for another, another two months. I could easily say keep coming back and then taking their hundred dollars, whatever, right? But I tell right. them, don't come back here for another two months. I don't want to see you. And when you come back in two months, you better have something down. You know, <laughs> so right. that's because I'm actually trying to I'm actually trying to make people better musicians. I'm not trying to collect money. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's very few honest teachers. You're right. That's a great way to do it, man. Let me switch gears if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. And uh, I, you know, I found you on Facebook and uh, Chris Barron is on Facebook and uh, almost all the guys are on Facebook in the band, I think. Right. Which is such a cool thing because you can, you know, be friends with people on Facebook and just chat with them a little bit here and there. And that's how we hooked this up. And I, I, um, I saw that you're conservative in your political stance. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd, uh, generally, <laughs> yeah, generally speaking, because, you know, as well as I do, people in the arts generally lean left. You know, whether you're an actor, right. or a musician or whatever you are, you're a painter, you know, historically, they're very left leaning. And I saw you talking about the president and uh, standing up for some conservative principles. And I was like, wow, I got to talk to this guy. So maybe, you know, share share a little bit. Did you grow up in a conservative home or did you just he- get tired of hearing, uh, you know, the rhetoric from the left or how did that happen? I, I grew up in a common sense home. That's what I did. You know, right. nobody nobody thought of it as liberal or conservative in those days. I mean, at least in my family. And so I had my, you know, my mother and my father had like little sayings. Like my father said to me, the police are just a tool of the system. And what does that mean? That means that when you get pulled over or you get stopped by the police, you don't argue with them. You don't insult them. You don't attack them. If you have a problem, you go take it to court. 
see, which is the, the most amazing thing anybody's ever said to me. And he's right. So if the, if the, if the, if the, if the, and basically what that means, if the law says the speed limit is 35 miles an hour, that's what the police officer has to enforce, right? Mm -hmm. But if, if the law says the speed limit is 160 miles an hour, the police officer has nothing. He, that's what he has to enforce. So if you're doing 170, then he's got to pull you over. That's what it's all about. It's not something that he's doing. It's, you know, that's what this, that's, that's the law of the land. So you got to follow that. Right. So, and, and, you know, and my mother said to me, she said to me, listen, the system is unfair. And I said, what does that mean? She says, don't get arrested. Mm. Because she knew as a black person, you know, you're going to have problems in there. So right. I never, I never got arrested. I, I respect the police on levels that, that defy logic. Mm -hmm. And whenever I see, when I saw those people pouring water on the police officers in New York city, I just wanted to beat the hell out of them. Because <laughs> that's outrageous. Yeah. You know, I've been pulled, I've been pulled over plenty of times, but you know, every time I got pulled over, I was breaking the law. I was exceeding the speed limit by, you know, a few, a few tens. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're totally right. I grew up in a lower middle class white family. I'm a white guy. And right. I was in a lot of trouble as a kid. And you know what? Right. It was my fault. And you know what we used right. to say as kids? The cops, man, the effing cops, F them. You know, right. they're always doing this, that, and that. They were completely right, and I was completely wrong. Right. And so I tried That's an experiment. I tried an experiment. I drove the speed limit for a month, and all of a sudden, I became invisible. <laughs> wow. What a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm just going to drive the speed limit and see what happens. And I was like, you see that? I mean, this, these cops ain't racist. They just pulling me over because I'm speeding. You know, and, and even in the white community, brother, we have people don't realize this because this doesn't get talked about much because, you know, it's not sensational enough, I guess, or whatever. But we we go through the same thing in different ways where it's like if you're that white kid in the community or you're from that family in the white community, the cops are picking on you. That's the that was the mentality. Oh, they only pulled me over because I'm a Johnson or because my father was this guy or whatever right. the case may be. It's the same everywhere. I, I don't I don't care what ethnicity, what race, what background uh, people will find a way to say they're against me. Right. So I I've basically been a conservative since I can remember. Mm -hmm. I've always I've always worked. I had a I had a, a, a mail route. I delivered papers when I was 10. You know, as soon as I could work, I was working. Right. And I always, I always wanted to take care of myself. And then my father, when my parents split, my father was on welfare and I was embarrassed. Like, you know, other people would be happy or whatever. You know, my friends, anybody, they're getting free money. I had food stamps. I hated it. Like We I had never food stamps to... too, man. So I relate. Right. I hated it. So, and I made a vow when I was a kid after that, I will never be on welfare again. I will work before I will, I will have to be dead or like paralyzed before I accept help. That was my, right. that was my thing. So I, I mean, that's just how I grew up. And I never liked any of the democratic presidents. I don't know why I didn't like them. I just didn't like them. Yeah. But you know what? Cause you have, you seem to have just from this short conversation, you've got, you said it perfect, man. It's common sense. You've got the uh, understanding about life that you make your way, that you do it on your own merit. If something, if you don't like something, change it, get out there and work your ass off, you know, right. you just pull yourself up like the old saying by your own bootstraps, get out there and do it, man. And you did it. And another thing my mother said to me, which was amazing. And she had, cause she had said it to an, an, uh, another a younger girl. This black girl was having problems. She said, never let your race hold you back. Mm. And, and I, you know, I took that to heart. So that's when I started auditioning for bands. I don't care if it said punk, hard rock, heavy metal. I don't care what it was. I showed up. Wow. And I got into a lot of bands, all white bands, because I just showed up and played great. And I was like, why, why does my color have to do? Why does it have to do with anything? And if it does then that's their problem. And I don't, I don't have to associate with them. You see, I, I believe that if you want to hate somebody, that's you're perfectly right. You have to respect people. But if you don't like somebody, how are we supposed to change that? How am I supposed to make people suddenly like another, another race? I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, never going to happen. Right. So you just, you know who these people are and you leave them alone and that's it. If they, if they attack you or if they try to do something wrong to you, then of course you got to do something. But if a person just walks down the street and they look at you dirty, what are you supposed to do? Punch him in the face? 
Right, exactly. Like, like that's going to solve the problem. <laughs> right, that's going to make it even worse. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, what you're supposed to do is just be a nice person, treat everybody with respect. That's what I do. And, and, and if you can help, like, you can't help, there's 7 billion people on the planet. You can't help everybody. But right. if, you can help, if you can help somebody in your immediate vicinity, then you should do that. I totally agree, man. Well, listen, man, I want to tell us a little bit about what the spin doctors are up to now. You guys are still out there. You're taking a break now. You're going back out. You're coming back to Florida. What's happening? Well, we just stopped. And our last gig was in Augusta. So we're not doing anything for three months. And then we're going to go to New York and do three shows and record another record. Excellent. And then uh, we'll start up. Then we're going to Panama, which is what what's going on with that? <laughs> Wow, I would, I would I would love not to go down there, but whatever. Yeah, and, uh, I you know my whole thing is man, I love, I like Japan. I like I don't know I don't know about Europe anymore. Europe is going down the tubes, but I just like I like nice things. I mean that that was the other thing about me is I like I like nice stuff. I like to see uh, I like to see the lawn cut. Right. You know, I I mean I'm living. I'm, my friends here they live here here in Orange Park and this golf community and it is so beautiful like you walk around i'm just like man it's like a dream over here i don't like to see decay i don't like when i when i drive through baltimore i don't like it oh yeah when i drive through los angeles i used to love los angeles but when i drive through it now i don't like it i like san diego when i go to japan when i was in japan i liked it when i was down in brazil i didn't like it you know i just like nice things that's just you know how i am and i i don't like to see filth i don't like this i don't like to see decay i don't like to see any of that i like i like for people to clean up after themselves you know i've seen people throwing things out of their car window and i just i wish i had a missile you know <laughs> like what a james bond missile in your car yeah I wish I, I wish i had a if i had a james bond car man a lot of people would not be making it home because <laughs> why are you throwing things out of your window i don't understand that yeah why well that just to me to is right, why can't you just wait till you get to the gas station and there's every gas station has a garbage disposal right next to when you pump gas. Does, does anybody else notice that? When I, when I pump gas, I take all my trash out of my car and I throw it in the bin. Right. You know, it's a lack of respect and I don't know. I mean, we could sit and talk about that all day. I saw somebody on Facebook a couple of years ago and I thought they nailed it. Uh, somebody, you know, we're having a similar conversation to this about mm -hmm. people doing things like that. And somebody said their parents failed, you know, and I thought <laughs> <laughs> that just hit me, man, because I thought, you know, listening to you talk about your mom and dad and where they instilled those things into you. And I have three grown sons that are married. I have grandkids and, uh, you know, we instilled those values in our sons and, and they have passed it on in their family and they would never think of rolling down their window and chucking garbage on the street. Same thing as you. They would see that and it would make their heart hurt. You know, yeah. how, can you, how can you do that, man? But if you're, not, if you're not brought up like that, you know, I think that carries over on into your adulthood. It's like, who gives a crap? I don't care. I don't have to clean it. Let, you me, know? Tell you funny, let me tell you something else my father said, which is really amazing. So, you know, we're... This is back in the early 70s. It might have been, so I was 15 years. So everything happened, no, 13. So everything, all this stuff happened. Before. Oh, I can't, my father, we were sitting down watching television and teen pregnancies, pregnancy started to come out. Right. You know, teenagers getting pregnant on a, on a rampant scale. And my father said, you watch, in 15 years, those kids are going to grow up to be monsters. Mm. Because he understood that, you know, unless you have your both your parents, you're going to raise a child. Absolutely. And he was 100% right. 15 years later, all those kids, a lot of those kids grew up to be monsters. I mean, that's where we had all the problems we, we've been having. Because you got all these kids running around without any parents, not being, having any discipline. Listen, when the lights came on and we weren't in the house, our new friend was the belt. Right. Yeah, me too. And and then you were punished for a couple of days. I mean, it was like you just had to follow the you had to follow the laws. You had to clean up after yourself. You had to, you had there was laws you had to follow when you lived in a house. Right. Like like there are laws you have to follow in society. The same thing. And and once if there's no laws in the house, then that transfers into no laws anywhere. And that's how you grow up and you turn into those monsters. Right. You gotta you gotta respect. Like when you go to a, a country like Japan, and you see how they 
treat each other. And you're just like, wow, man, it's like a whole other world over here. And then you come back here and you see people don't, it's different. You know? Yeah. Well, they're a country, they're a country founded on honor right, and so, respect. Yeah. And this, is the, this is the reason why I'm mostly conservative because my liberal friends to me don't have any honor. And, right. and so I can't get down with that. I can't, I can't get down with the, you know, listen, I practice this four finger thing every day, all day long for 10 hours a day, like the whole time, right? I'm just, that's all I'm doing. And mm -hmm. while I'm doing that, I'm watching YouTube and I'm watching everything. I listen to liberals. I listen to conservatives. I listen to religious, atheists, everybody. I listen to everything, right? Because I want to know everything. And because all I got to do is just move my fingers. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, four, you know, what is it? Yep. 10,000 hours you got to do it for whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. So I do that all the time and I'm, I'm, it's gotten, it's, it's really good now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually can play two princes with all four fingers now, which, which is, which is what I was trying to do. It's like, if I could do all it right, on stage, I, I could get it. But while I'm doing that, I'm educating my mind. Right. Exactly. And I'm, and I'm listening to things and I'm telling you, the people on the left are insane. Mm -hmm. They're insane. That's all there is to it. They're, they're, they're just angry, evil people. And when I tried to, when I got, I have liberal friends, and when I tried to sh show them this, this remember, this is people's cell phones that I'm looking at. These are events where people have cameras on, which they don't show you on CNN because if they did, you know, people would flip out. They refuse to even look at it. Wow. Now, how is that possible? I mean, I, yeah, I, have, well, that... I have, listen, I have found far right websites that would make you want to just be like, what the hell are these people talking about? I mean, it is brutal. Mm -hmm. Super racist talking. I mean, it's on another, it's like insane monkey this. And the, I mean, these, it's insane. It's there. Yeah. Right. But I acknowledge that. But when you try to get a leftist person to acknowledge Antifa, or all these, all these other terrorist little people running around and attacking you while you're trying to eat dinner and throwing milkshakes at you and vandalizing things and flipping out. They act like it doesn't exist. That's not right. It's no, wrong. exactly. Yeah, it's to totally wrong. And you would think it would be obvious to anyone that it's completely wrong. But I think they're justifying it in their minds by saying, we have every right to do that because they associate the right or conservatism now with the far right. So they're saying, <laughs> if you're on the right, that must mean you're on the far right. And we have every right to punch you in the face or to come in the restaurant and flip your table over, or spit in your food or whatever. When that's completely, I mean, the far right are just as idiotic as the far left. Exactly. That's exactly right. And here's the thing, dude. In Minnesota, after that Trump rally, those Trump people got attacked. Remember that? Yep. But in Dallas, nobody got attacked. Right. And why is that, you think? Why is it that I think nobody got attacked there? Yeah. Why did, why did nobody get, why did not anybody on the Trump side get attacked in, in, in uh, Dallas? Why do you think that is? It may be because of the culture there, because of the police force. No, because your ass will get shot. <laughs> but you mean because of their gun laws? That's right. We we're armed down here, man. Right. When you break right. into a when you break into a house in Texas, you're taking a 50-50 chance. That's why I think the criminals in Texas are really bold. I mean, they're bolder. I mean, everywhere else you can just do whatever you want, but in Texas, you're taking a chance that you might get shot. Right. And that's the thing about these whole gun laws, and that's another can of worms. But what they never talk about is how many lives were saved by people owning guns. You know what's funny? Right. Right. Somebody breaks into your house and wants to kill your wife and kids and you take that guy out, your entire family was saved. And so the, in that instance, having a gun was a really good thing. But that's right. never, ever, ever, ever spoken about. Well, a friend of mine a couple years ago educated me on something really strange because I wasn't even thinking on this level. We were just talking about, about the, the media. And he says, you know, propaganda has been around since the beginning of time. I mean, that's what people do. I mean, you see it everywhere. Why do you, what makes you think that they're not doing it now? Oh, they absolutely are.
And I never no thought about that. Listen, I never thought about that. I didn't even think that it was like, and, and I just sat down, I, we were on this terrace and I was just like, I just sat there shocked out of my mind. And that's when, every, that's, that's when I had like an epiphany. That's when everything changed for me. That's when I stopped believing the press. And that's when I started right. digging, that's when I start, started digging even more and realizing that what he was, because I didn't even believe him. But when I started digging in more, I was like, wow, this dude is absolutely right. This is, this is horrible. They're brainwashing. So like when I, have a, when I have a discussion with a liberal, like my friends, they always say the same thing like they're robots. 97% of the people scientists. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're parroting the rhetoric. Right. I mean, she, it, it's almost amazing. And then, and then when you, they only listen to CNN. They only listen, they only read the Washington Post. They only listen to their own liberal stuff. Which is amazing to me, and so when you when you when you look at them, you're just like, why? Other side is doing like, why wouldn't you do that? And and they just refuse to do that. Like I don't understand yeah. what, what would stop you from. I don't understand what would stop a, a, a liberal person from watching Fox News and trying to find out what the hell's going on over there. Yeah, well, there's a lot to that, man. I have friends that are the same way. And uh, it's the old, uh, you know, stick your fingers in your ears and close your eyes. Ah, I don't hear that because I might actually learn something. I might actually realize that what I believe is wrong and I couldn't stomach that. Because if I'm wrong, what happens then? I lose all my friends. I, I lose my circle, my social circles. Uh, what, you know, what could, there are you know, there's a long story. I won't get into it now, but for years I was involved in the church pretty seriously. And when I began to, to discover some things, uh, I was actually going to school for theology. I began to discover some things I disagreed with. And I actually said to myself, if I come out with this, my entire circle of friends are gone. Everybody I've known for 30 years is going to walk away from me. Yeah, that's what's happening. And, uh, and that's happened to me. Yeah, and that's, I think, I think to be fair to the other side, even though I agree with you completely, you got to look at both sides of the coin, man. You can't just stare at the heads the whole time and say, that's all there is to the coin is the head. No, man, there's another side to this thing. Um, to be fair to them, I think a lot of them are scared to death to look at the other side, because then what? What if it is true? Right. Well, here's, here's, a, good, here's, a, good, here's a good little thing that I love to tell people from uh, Star Wars. This is Palpatine talking to Anakin. Mm -hmm. If one is to understand the great mystery, one must study all his aspects, not just a dogmatic, narrow view of the general. Mm. If you are to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. Wow. Yeah, that says it, man. And so like, so like I'm a Sith Lord as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I love that, man. Let's end on that note, brother. <laughs> I mean, there's no better spot to end than that. Dude, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy life. Or you're on vacation now. You should be chilling out. Thanks for doing this with me. And maybe we'll do it again sometime. No problem. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm always All right. Good luck work. out there. I'm looking forward to the new music. Okay, man. Oh, Thank you very bye -bye. much. Take care.